The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to Slate's I Have to Ask. I'm Isaac Chotner. My guests today are David Korn and Michael Isikoff, the authors of the new book Russian Roulette, the inside story of Putin's war on America and the election of Donald Trump. Korn, who is the Washington bureau chief for Mother Jones, and Isikoff, the chief investigative correspondent for Yahoo News, are longtime reporters and previously co-wrote a book on the Iraq war. Their latest tries to trace the story of Donald Trump in Russia, which goes back before the 2016 campaign. It also examines the response of the American government to Russian hacking and the growing investigation into Trump and his associates. Korn and Isikoff join me now from Slate Studios in New York City. Guys, thank you so much for being here. Great to be great, with you. Isaac. Great to be with you. You guys are the first uh, double guest I've had on an episode, so let's uh, let's bring our A game. We feel honored. So. My first question, which either one of you can take, is that this is a book of reportage. Um, You're tracing the story of Trump and Russia. But it also seems like there's a certain thesis to the book, um, reading between the lines. What would um, would would either of you disagree with that? And if not, what would you say the thesis of the book is? Well, why don't you tell us what you think (laughs) you saw between the lines? I guess what I thought is that you guys, after your reporting, came to the conclusion that the story of Trump and Russia is a somewhat mysterious one and that in due course with a full investigation, as presumably is going on now, more evidence will come to the surface because there are too many coincidences and loose ends and uh, strange things that you discovered and that have been discovered by other reporters. But uh, what do you think? I would say that... um I don't think we really had a thesis along those lines. We wanted to tell a story. And it actually is a hell of a story when you put it all together um, with a beginning. We start out in Moscow in 2013, the Miss Universe pageant, and trace it through to the Trump presidency, uh, in which is bedeviled by uh, his Russian contacts and um, uh, his past Russian dealings. And um, I think that when you look at it like that as a story, uh, first of all, I think you see things uh, in uh, in ways that you might not have seen before just by reading the headlines every day and following the latest cable news, uh, revel- breaking news revelations. But I think people are drawing different conclusions from this book um, because there's so much evidence, uh, you know, that can help people on all sides, regardless of where you're coming from. I, I would say I, I largely agree with that, but there are some, if not outright conclusions um, that we draw. There are certain certain themes through the book. And as we, you know, look at Trump and his relationship with Putin starting in 2013 and moving through the campaign and th- through the presidency, it's quite clear that there is something there. You know, we would call it a bromance or something darker. Trump, um, as, as we note in the early chapters, was obsessed with doing a business deal in Russia, and that made him obsessed with Putin, with wanting to meet Putin at the Miss Universe contest. We have a, a great story of him spending two days saying, where's Putin? Why? When is he calling? Is he coming to Miss Universe? But we carry that through to um, through a, a series of failed business deals in 2014 and then again in 2015 to do a deal in Russia. And then we look at the campaign and again, the rise of this curious relationship between Donald Trump and Putin and then others join in on the campaign actually in contact 
with Rush, with Russians, whether it's George Papadopoulos or Carter Page and Michael Flynn and Paul Manafort. And we take it then through the actual Russian attack on the election, which is key. And what to me is important to note is how the Trump circle and Trump himself reacted. You know, there's been a lot of talk about collusion. Was there collusion? And I confess, we found no emails showing Donald Trump telling Vladimir Putin what emails to hide, to steal and what to dump. There's not that type of collusion. But we tell the story of Trump and his aides repeatedly denying that Russia was meddling in the election, even after they had reason to believe and they were told that Russians secretly wanted to help um, the Trump campaign at, an infamous, at the infamous Tower meeting in June 2016, even after Trump was briefed by the intelligence community in August 2016 and told the Russians were behind it. And through all that, Trump representatives are still meeting with Russians and signaling to them, it seems, that they at least didn't mind what was going on and that they still wanted to have a good relationship with Moscow while Trump was denying this information warfare campaign was underway. So, you know, we don't, this is not the explicit conclusion that we put in the book, but we do say that they aided and abetted the Russian attack. And I think that is a form of collusion. I want to go back to the 2013 Trump trip to Moscow, which I would say yeah. is kind of the the sort of starting and central event of your book and uh, read you something that you guys wrote and then get your, your take on it. Here's what you say. Quote, what could possibly explain Trump's unwavering sympathy for the Russian strongman, his refusal to acknowledge Putin's repressive tactics, his whitewashing of Putin's abuses in Ukraine and Syria, his dismissal of the murders of Putin's critics, his blind eye to Putin's cyber attacks and disinformation campaigns aimed at subverting Western democracies. Trump's brief trip to Moscow held, held clues to this mystery. The question I want to ask you guys about this is that there's been a lot of speculation that Trump's trip to Moscow based because of the Steele dossier and other things that he had sort of been compromised on that trip. But one of the things that your book points out is that Trump was already a huge Putin admirer before he arrived in Moscow, perhaps because he wanted business deals there. But do you did you ever think reporting that looking into Trump's feelings before he went to Moscow in some way perhaps undercut the the sexier allegations in the Steele dossier because Trump had already shown these beliefs before he got there? Well, first of all, you got to go back five months to Las Vegas, where the plans for Miss Universe in Moscow are hatched. That's that's the Miss USA pageant, the feeder for Miss uh, Universe. And that's when he meets Aras Agalarov, the billionaire oligarch who's known as Putin's builder um, because of all the construction projects he'd done for the for the Kremlin. That's where he first meets Emin Agalarov, the pop singer son of Aras, uh, and Rob Goldstone, the British publicist. Um the uh, I, I've called you know Emin and uh, and Goldstone the Rosencrantz and Guildenstern of this story because they're they're always there they always keep popping up and so it was at that moment you know when you see 
Trump's eyes light up at the prospect of forming a business partnership with an oligarch who is close to Putin. This is how I can get my um, my business deal, the Trump Tower in Moscow that I've always wanted actually built. And I think that's when you really start to see the fawning comments and tweets and 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 public statements about um about Putin that Trump starts to make. So it fits right into uh, the point we were trying to make in that passage about um, uh, the Miss Universe pageant being the stepping stone for Trump to get the kind of business deal in Moscow that he's always wanted. And if I can add uh, something here, Isaac, we we show in the book that Trump for 30 years had been trying to get this deal done in Moscow. And that for a lot of that time, too, he had had other financial arrangements with Russians. He sold one of his Palm Beach mansions, as you probably know, to a Russian for a $45 million profit that seemed very unusual at the time. And now both of his sons, Donald Trump Jr. and Eric Trump, both in, you know, publicly or privately to people, said they had a lot of Russian money coming into Trump properties and Trump investments. So... Even before this moment in time, he had reason to be friendly and sympathetic to the Russian government because you can't do deals. You you know, if if he was known as hard on Putin in the early 2000s or anybody else leading the Russian government, it would be harder. So finances came first. I also think he identified to some degree with Putin. He likes a strong man. I think he himself wanted to be an American oligarch and a global oligarch. He got his wish. You know, he did in a way. Well, I think the I think the jury's still out on that a bit. But um, hooking up with Eris Aguilerov in Las Vegas and forming a personal bond and a business bond was really where he wanted to be. Let me ask you about that trip to Vegas, which is which is another central scene in your book, uh, which is sort of planning with Rob Goldstone and with the Aguilerovs. Remind me, which Aguilerov was in Vegas? They well, both they, both, were. they both were. They both but, were there. Okay, yeah, that's yeah. right. So they're in Vegas, and they essentially go to this club where one of the acts that the cl- the club uh, simulates, I believe, was the word you guys used rather than <laughs> yes. forms. I want to get this. I want to get this correct for our audience here. Um, Please is. Um, women urinating on one another or in general. And so obviously this sort of uh, mirrors some accusations in the Steele dossier about what happened when Trump went to Moscow in a trip that was set up by the same people five months later or however months later it was. My reading of when I read this was that there were two ways to look at it. One is that um, people who were giving information to, to Christopher Steele for the Steele dossier got their kind of stories confused about what was going on. And so the story of what happened at this Vegas club where Trump was or what was known to happen at this Vegas club became a story in the Steele dossier based on what happened in Moscow. The other reading of the story that you could take is that um, Trump perhaps expressed some interest in this or the people he was with were interested in this. And so given that those same people helped set up the Moscow trip, one thing leads to another. Can either of you enlighten us, if that's the word I'm looking for, um, based... (laughs) Yeah. Can either of you enlighten us about uh, which of those two Ultimately, readings? We don't know what happened in the this Moscow. Is David. Yeah, this is David in the Moscow hotel room. We traced Trump's actions in Moscow for a day and a half when he was there for Miss Universe, almost to the hour. And we know he was at a party until late in the night, maybe one thirty a.m., and then he was up the next morning at six thirty 
uh, 7 a.m. to do a video shoot with Emin Agalarov. And so the time frame is, is, is indeed narrow, and there's no confirmation. So it's hard to say whether these inspired the stories or inspired the deed itself. And you know, Christopher Steele, this is one of the things we break in the book, when asked about this allegation by his colleagues, says, well, it's 50-50. So it remains an open question. So it's hard to say what the trip to Las Vegas means in way of proving one of your theses or the other. Let me weigh on this in on this. Look, I do think it was um, uh, it's kind of weird that they happened to go to this club uh, in which these sort of acts were um, root- regularly performed. We wish we could take the story further and uh, and, and you document. probably also wish you couldn't, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, and look, that has gotten some attention, and uh, some have interpreted it in both of the ways that you have just suggested, you know, did, was there a garbled version of what happened in Las Vegas that somehow got transmorgified into what got told to Christopher Steele in, in, uh, about what happened in Moscow? Did it inspire people? Was this something that Emin Agalarov and Rob Goldstone happened to be into? And somehow that's how, uh, uh the word got to Steele, uh, trans to um to Trump but just taking look because obviously the golden shower uh, allegation was the most sensational and salacious part of the uh, of the steel dossier a couple things worth mentioning uh, as we point out in the book um, Trump has an alibi witness Keith Schiller his bodyguard who says uh, who told the uh, House Intelligence Committee when he was interviewed that, yes, somebody did come to him uh, when they got to Moscow offering to bring prostitutes to the room to Trump's uh, hotel suite and that he turned that the offer down saying we don't do that sort of thing. And then uh, uh, Schiller went on to say that he was with Trump that evening, the one evening he was in Moscow and uh, walked with him to his hotel room and then uh, Trump went in. He stood guard for a while and left. It is possible and saw that, nothing and, and that he saw nothing. It is worth noting in the current context that um, Stormy Daniels, uh, gave an interview uh, to In Touch Weekly that wasn't published at the time, but was recently published, in which she identified Keith Schiller as her liaison for hooking up with Donald Trump. She said she, whenever she wanted to see Trump or Trump wanted to see her, it came through Keith Schiller. She would call Keith Schiller. He would escort her to his to Trump's hotel room for uh, their uh, sexual affair. So make of that what you will. What that says about um, uh, how much we should trust uh, Keith Schiller's account of what happened in Moscow. You know, maybe we're going to learn more in coming days as uh, Stormy Daniels speaks out. Stay tuned for more from Michael Isikoff and David Korn right after a break. L- let me ask you, though, I mean, I imagine when you guys were reporting this book mm-hmm. and uh, when you answer this question, I'd be curious to know how you divvied up the reporting. But when you were doing the reporting, um, I imagine you came into contact with people who either contributed to the Steele dossier or people who exist in the same world as the people who contributed to the Steele dossier. And I'm wondering what those people, when you talk to them, what their opinion of the Steele dossier was, regardless of the specific um, 
things that they told you? You know, it's very interesting. Um, there have been some intelligence professionals and veterans, people who worked at the CIA, people who probably knew Christopher Steele or knew of his work, who have basically done public reviews of the dossier and have said, this looks exactly like the type of intelligence reporting I did, I looked for when I was working for the CIA or some other agency and have credited him as a credible source of of information, meaning that these are reports that are honestly and in good faith received, not that these are reports that are confirmed. And that's, you know, a key thing to keep in mind when considering the dossier. Um, He was hired, Steele was hired by Fusion GPS, which itself had been retained by the Democratic Party and the Clinton campaign to do research on, on Donald Trump opposition research. And it was his job to go out and see what he could find using his existing network that he had in, in Russia as part of his private intelligence service. And this is what he came back with. He himself was shocked. We write about this in the book. He was shocked to find some of these um, allegations, not just the salacious ones, but that there was a you know, a concerted effort on the part of the Russian government going back years to cultivate and co-opt Trump, which I think was always the most significant element of the Steele memos. And looking at this reporting, they say this is the way you, you should do it. He, Steele never thought this would be public. He thought it would be he was writing for the benefit of his of, of the people who had hired him. And the sources that he used, which he describes in the dossier, are people within Russian government circles, close into the Kremlin, and not the type of people that reporters tend to have access to. So it's it's hard to go in there and double check and verify. Uh, but he was, but the information was never put out in a way, or he never intended it to be out in a way that would be open to fact checking from us or politifact.com or the you know or Glenn Kessler at the Washington Post anything like that so it was a intelligence product i think what we write in the book is like you know from a a big picture he clearly had stumbled upon uh something real which was a uh kremlin campaign to um interfere in our election and forge ties with Trump and uh, and and people in Trump's orbit. In that sense, in the broad sense, he was somewhat ahead of the pack and got the big picture right. The particulars, including the most, you know, the sensational parts of it, um, the jury is still out. I don't have a lot of patience for those who say, well, Tell us what has been proven wrong. I think, you know, if somebody makes allegations of this kind, the onus is uh, for them to prove it right. And, you know, for many, many of the particulars in the uh, in in the dossier remain unproven. Um, But David's right. You know, I don't. Christopher Steele, my sense, is an honorable guy. It was a civil servant, you know, was steeped in Russia and Putin's world, um, believed he understood it. There's an element of paranoia to anybody who enters into Putin's world, and that may have colored the way he viewed some of this. Um, But I don't think he was trying to or intended to influence a political process. I believe he thought of this the whole time as a national security, international security issue. 
I want to ask about one thing in your guys' book, which you don't go into incredible detail on, but I, since Rob Goldstone is a character in the book, I, I wanted to ask you about this, which is Rob Goldstone, who uh, was the person who helped set up the Trump Tower meeting in June of 2016, wrote an infamous email to Donald Trump Jr., um, sort of offering dirt on Hillary Clinton. And in the email, uh, he wrote, and I'll quote, this is obviously very high level and sensitive information, but is part of Russia and its government support for Mr. Trump. What I've Hmm. always found fascinating about that is the offhanded way in which Russia and its government support for Mr. Trump was was stated in the email as if it was something that Goldstone knew about and it was something that Donald Trump Jr. knew about. Now, of course, this was before WikiLeaks uh, released Mm -hmm. their cache of information. It, it It was before there'd been lots of public headlines about Russian hacking of the DNC. I believe in I may have that timeline wrong, but I believe that's the case. And so the the offhanded way in this was this was mentioned always seemed extremely confusing to me and strange. And I was wondering if if you guys have sort of a take on that after examining Rob Goldstone and who he was and if you can shed light on it. Well, that's a very wise observation, and I think it hasn't gotten enough attention that the this Trump Tower meeting was set up by the Aguilerovs, you know, by Emin and by his father, because the memo, you know, the email says that Eris Aguilarov was meeting with the you know, prosecutor general, the, you know, sort of the attorney general of, of Russia, who is a Putin crony, and that he had information to share. And these were the partners that Trump had had in this universe, and of course, with the effort to have a Trump Tower afterward. And you're right, there's a casual attitude to it. Um, Rob Goldstone says in the same email, what's the best way to get this to your dad? Should I go through his secretary, Rona, whose name he knows? And it's not like we have something very private to talk to you about. Can you get on signal with me? Uh, It's done in this very sort of informal way. By the way, are you going to meet with these guys? You know, what should I do? Um, and, and, And the way Donald Trump Jr. responds is pretty cavalier. Yeah, you know, uh, let's you know, let's talk about this. This is great. I love it. There's no caution here, and I think it speaks to the fact that there was a very close relationship. And just if I can pick up on that, you know, that Trump Tower meeting uh, has gotten so much attention uh, and been ex- put under so much scrutiny. But one of the revelations in our book is there was an earlier Trump Tower meeting, 17 months earlier, January of 2015, Emin and Rob Goldstone go to Trump Tower to meet Donald Trump himself. Trump welcomes them there. Uh, it's kind of a bizarro scene where Trump is listening to uh, YouTube videos about himself that are actually mocking him. And when Rob Goldstone asks him about it, he says, who cares what, what's in the words? This has 90 million hits on YouTube. Uh, and then um, Trump says to him, and, you know, maybe next time you'll be singing in the White House, giving an early indication of his plans to run for president. And, and I that's think- it, but that's important. You. Yeah. In, in interviews, sometimes we skip by this. Here it is, early 2015. Right. You know, and Trump is telling Emin Egerlarov, whose father is an oligarch close to Putin, hey, I'm thinking of running for president. Next time you perform, it won't be at Miss Universe, it may be at the White House. Right. What do you think Emin 
says and does with that information. What do you think happens if Aris Aguilarov finds out that his good friend Donald Trump might be running for president? Who do you think he tells that to? What wheels start turning exactly, at that point? But it tells you it tells you uh, uh, more about just you know the these relationships that were much deeper and uh, and richer than I think people imagined. But on the issue of 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 plans for run for president, I should point you also. Uh, Isaac to a scene in Moscow uh, even earlier in 2013. Why Donald Trump only had one night in Moscow? Um, he was originally supposed to be there for two nights, but he cut it short. Why? Because he had been invited to Billy Graham's 95th birthday party being put on by uh, Billy Graham's son, Franklin Graham, a very influential conservative evangelical leader and also was sort of a partner with uh, uh, Trump in the in the birther movement. And um, you know, Trump was there uh, sitting at the uh, VIP table with Sarah Palin and Rupert Murdoch uh, in Ashland. North Carolina, basically incurring favor with the evangelical right so he could lay these grounds for running for president. It was a connection that Rob Goldstone caught at the time. He understood why Trump needed to go to that event. Right. Although doesn't that doesn't that also suggest that kind of the the more extreme conspiracy theories about like Trump was blackmailed by Putin after his trip in Moscow and that's when he started to really take seriously running for president are unlikely to be true. It seems like what you guys are saying is that Trump was seriously considering it. I mean, we know he talked about it in 2000 and 2012, but he was very Mm. seriously considering it the next time and that uh, the Russians or people like Rob Goldstone sort of... um, uh, use that to their advantage rather than that this whole thing was kind of oh yeah i don't i don't i don't think there's much evidence out there to say that trump ran for president because the russians had compromised on him and he sort of egged him on or forced him or asked him to do it directly but i think there's another important element of that email that that you cited a moment ago um, that rob goldstone sent to donald trump jr and saying that the kremlin had dirt on hillary they wanted to share with the Trump campaign, you know, that was in in early June. And, and then, of course, uh, that led to the meeting between a Russian emissary and Trump Jr., Paul Manafort and Jared Kushner. That At that point in time, the Trump campaign now has been informed at the highest possible levels, and I'd say even without Trump himself, that the Russians wanted to help the campaign and they wanted to do it secretly. And even if this information that came in wasn't what was going to be, you know, be useful to them. You know, they still were on Trump's side. It's five days after that meeting, five days after that meeting, that it's revealed, and first in the Washington Post, that the Russians hacked the DNC. And then, of course, a month later, the emails are released ahead of the Democratic Party convention. From the very start, actually, the first response the Trump campaign has to the news of the DNC hack is that it's a hoax. The DNC is, is is perpetuating a hoax, claiming it's been hacked, and they and, and they've hacked themselves. And then after the emails come out, Donald Trump Jr., who was at that meeting, and Paul Manafort, you know, go on TV 
and say the Russians have nothing to do with any of this. And to suggest it is crazy. Yeah. The scandal's in plain sight, right? I yeah, mean, it, I, it is. It is. Yeah, it, it, right. it happens all the You know, that's one of, if you asked about themes earlier, that's kind of one of our themes. And we thought pulling everything together, because you and I and everybody else out there were bombarded with news stories and scoops every single day about this, about different elements. They don't come out in chronological order. People forget what they remember, what they saw, what they heard. And you don't see it next you don't see each piece next to each other so we thought if we could weave everything together while adding new information and advancing the story we could do a public service at this point in time and say here is a story up to now with new information and you know take a breath take a pause put down twitter for a few moments and consider the big picture uh, let, let me just uh, start. I can start with Michael for this. You guys didn't answer my question about how you divvied up reporting. So I'm curious <laughs> how you did that. You don't want to. This isn't the sausage making department. It's... Yeah, yeah, it's not pretty. Uh, look, um, we um, we both independently had been doing our own reporting on this. Uh, you know, during the 2016 presidential campaign. I mean, we had collaborated back, you know, 10 years ago, 11 years ago on the Iraq war book. But, um, you know, David was writing for Mother Jones. I'm writing for Yahoo. Uh, we both uh, aggressively did a lot of stories about Trump and his Russia ties during the campaign, so much so that we happen to be the only two reporters who end up in the uh, famous uh, or infamous Devin Nunes memo um, cited, which was an interesting uh, experience. A dubious, in a dubious yeah, honor. Yeah, yeah. But um, so we all we both had our own sources. Uh, we both tap them. Uh, and, um, you know, we, you know, almost every chapter, I think, uh, was a collaborative process of reporting by both of us. Yeah. I mean, people are interested in this and it's not like Mike wrote one chapter. I wrote the next chapter or even portions. We were reporting and you know, we split up the reporting in certain ways. So we often didn't talk to the same people. What we'd get together, we'd think about what the chapter should be. We start writing drafts and they would go back and <laughs> forth, back and forth. And, you know, a lot of blood on the floor, usually metaphorically speaking. Um, so it was, you know, a pretty much a blended collaboration uh, with. Uh, so I, I know people have read the book and they try to figure out which one of us wrote which portion of, of, the, of the story. But there really is no way to determine that. And I don't remember at this point. David Korn and Michael Isikoff are the authors of the new book, Russian Roulette, the inside story of Putin's war on America and the election of Donald Trump. Guys, thank you so much for being on the program. Thank you. Thank you, Isaac. And that's our show for today. I Have to Ask is produced by Max Jacobs. And thanks to Topher Ruth at Northgate Studios in Berkeley. And thanks for the additional help from Jason DeLeon at Slate in Brooklyn. If you have an idea for a guest or you just want to let me know your thoughts, email me at ask at slate.com. That's ASK at slate.com. If Then is a podcast about technology, society, and power. 
Each week, Slate's April Glazer and Will Aremus take you on a lively tour of the tech news that actually matters, from fake news in your Facebook feed to the algorithms that want your job to the Uber drivers who want a job with benefits. With newsmaking interviews of key tech industry figures, fascinating academics, and top tech journalists, they explore not only how the technology that's shaping our world works, but the ideas, ideologies, incentives, and biases that underlie it. There's a new show out every Wednesday, so please give a listen and subscribe. That's If Then from Slate.